0: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey,
1: oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Obo Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Lure of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Obos, and Fox products. For a current listing of Obo Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi,
0: I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. girl uh, how is it going great how are you oh i am good i am, um, you know just enjoying this summer having a little bit of a break playing with orby the doggo
2: mm. you know how it goes how about you
0: very
1: good also taking a little bit of a break making good on my commitment to nap often <laughs> uh <laughs> I had a super busy June. So these couple weeks in July, I've been really taking it easy. And now I'm I'm feeling ready to jump back in. I scheduled my faculty recital for like the last weekend in August. So it's go time
0: now. I love it. I love it. Well, we've got a fun dish planned for today. But before we dive dove into that, I wanted to share something with the listeners if you will indulge me. Of course. Um, I just wanted to recommend an article to you all. This article comes from the Kansas City Pitch. We will link to that in the show notes. Maybe some of you do not know. Maybe some of you have been following it. Uh, Joshua Jones, who was the Kansas City Symphony's principal percussion, who is also Black, was denied tenure. And his story is very compelling and indicative that that decision was not transparent, fraught, and based in racism. Mm -hmm. And so for those of us in this classical community, I think it's really important to look these things in the face when they arise. And it's important to listen. And though Josh's story has been a part of discussion kind of on classical music internet over the past month and a half, this article is the first time that he is speaking out in his own words and telling his own story. And as we increasingly strive to recognize and address and combat anti-Blackness in this world in classical music... I just think it's a really important thing to pay attention to and it's a really important time to listen to him and his experience. And so. Uh, yes, we're going to share this in the show notes and highly recommend that you check it out with an open heart and an open mind. And, you know, just want to say we stand in solidarity with Joshua Jones and are really hoping for the outcome that will be best for him professionally and personally.
1: A thousand percent. Yep. So we stand with Josh Jones.
0: So yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to say about that. But, you know, shifting gears back to our dish, part of why I have this break right now is because I recently went through the, you know, very emotional process. And I sent you voice memos the entire time (laughs) of mailing my bassoon across the country, which is the first time I've ever done that. I've either driven to a repair person or, you know, had stuff done in person. And when you live in the Pacific Northwest, it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, And um, yes, so my bassoon is currently in the shop. It's getting some tender love and care. It did make it. I was tracking that tracking number every single day. I was like, oh my gosh. And um, it gave me the idea of what if we dished about stories about getting your instrument repaired and worked on. So yes, that's what we're dishing about today.
1: Well, I've told this story before, but well, I guess I have a couple that I've told before. The one time that uh, when I was in high school and at Eastern Music Festival, and I was playing a festival English horn, and I thought I had zipped up the case. But I didn't and then picked up the case and the whole thing just rolled onto the floor. <laughs> and then the time where I like went up to John Simer and had him work on my oboe and it felt amazing. I was practicing afterwards and I set the oboe down that night and I didn't set it down on a flat surface, and it, again, tumbled to the floor. <laughs> and I had to go back the next day. He <laughs> was so nice. <laughs> it, it can be extremely uh, triggering <laughs> to get your, your instrument worked on.
0: <laughs> well, if you let it roll off of an object and onto the floor, yes, for sure.
1: <laughs> but it listen... Can be- It makes me a little bit more empathetic when
0: my students do dumb stuff like that. Yeah, please don't judge us for what we do before we had an intact frontal lobe. (laughs)
1: Luckily, you you did not do that with your horn. Your horn is currently, like, in good hands. Yes. And getting worked on, But we asked Instagram. And well, Instagram, I have a story. Ever, oh, you have a story. Okay. Okay. Well, it's, I guess it's I more of a- I figured you were perfect and you never did anything wrong.
0: Well, this isn't a story about me doing anything wrong. It's actually a bit more of a shout out that I wanted to give. So currently my bassoon, which is a Puchner, is being worked on at Midwest Musical Imports. And, and they are the Puchner people in the United States. And so that's pretty much exclusively who works on my instrument for this is a little bit of an emotional story. But for those of you who remember, uh, before I had Mr. Orby the puppy, I had Buddy the Basset Hound and he was my first beloved dog. And, um, he passed away in December 2020 and we had about a two and a half year period without a dog and the one place that I had never really brought myself to vacuum or clean up was my bassoon case because his hair got everywhere. It was all over of the course. place. And, you know, just, yeah. so the, his hair was still in my bassoon case and it was a big comfort to me. And I, we were at IDRS Boulder. You were there for this. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to take my bassoon to the table and just have him look it over. And, uh, I kind of had this realization of like, oh my God, I know what happens when a repair person, because it had happened before many times in his life. I know that when an instrument repair person opens up a case and it's covered in basset hound hair, they get out their little vacuums and they vacuum it up. And I just started crying and I was like, I can't let any more pieces of him go like at that point in the process. And- So I walked up to the table. It was Eric Anderson from Midwest Musical Imports. Shout out, Eric. And I said, I know that there is dog hair all over the inside of this bassoon case. And I just need you to leave it where it is. And he gave me this kind of knowing look. And he said, I understand completely. It will be exactly as you left it. And um, yes, it was a very sweet, you're repair person isn't supposed to give you therapy but it was a therapeutic response (laughs) to an emotional reaction to a lot of repair
1: people are like actually we do give a lot of therapy (laughs) i feel like that's probably more common than we would
2: hope
0: oh yeah i'm sure they have to deal with all sorts of emotions
1: hmm
0: oh, okay so but you the listeners have stories as well they're not to be left out
1: no they have some good ones okay so this is from joshua joshua says my undergrad c-sharp trill pad fell off 20 minutes before the concert fixed it with chewing gum oh <laughs> i don't know that i would have been that resourceful in the moment well is this a good is this resourceful or is this like well you have to play what are you gonna do like remember when my remember when my c-pad just felt just jumped off my horn because it was too cold in there and I was like well it's good I don't have to play any low c's
0: (laughs) that's true and I guess it's just coming in contact with the pad and metal but Oh my goodness. That's <laughs> MacGyver. I give it, I give it two thumbs up. Bassoon MacGyver. <laughs> okay. We have friend of the podcast, Emily Brebach says, my thumb rest broke during the first rehearsal of Ravel piano concerto this season. Had to do an emergency thumb rest transplant at my read desk that night. So that's, you know, become your own hero. Um, Be the
1: change you want to see
0: in the world. Yes, become your own repair person. (laughs) Maybe not. All the repair people are like screaming at their audio devices right now.
1: Please don't.
0: (laughs) Please do not become your own repair person.
1: Also, Emily must have wrists of steel to be able to play that piece without a neck strap yeah like, how the thumb rest working and without it because she sent a picture it looks like the next strap ring broke like I don't know how I don't know how so kudos yes <laughs> um Oscar says I cracked the first English horn I ever played at music camp a day before the concert Oscar oh. <laughs> are we the same <laughs> you cracked yours I dropped mine <laughs> so, we might be the same
0: Uh, A friend of the podcast, Noelle Drews, um, is a repair person, as you know. That's right. This is going to be so
1: good. I'm so excited.
0: She gave us many examples from the other perspective. Most memorable, an oboe that had been sat upon cracked in half. I feel like, I wonder if the person who cracked the oboe in half has responded to our listener questions before, because I feel like we have had a listener tell a tale of having sat on an oboe and cracked it in half. Is that ringing any bells to you?
1: It is, but I think it might just be because it's not as
0: uncommon as you would hope. Oh, so people are just sitting on an oh, yes. and breaking <laughs> them in half every day. Is that how you cracked the English horn, Oscar? Did you sit on it? Oscar. <laughs> we need more details now. <laughs> Noelle
1: also says... The most common thing she sees is oboe just won't play, but it's just out of adjustment. So that's good, at least. Nobody said on that
0: one. Let me tell you, from the bassoon perspective, the oboe and what you all have to deal with just to play your instrument, I don't, like, I can't relate. Like, I honestly would probably be like, I'll just do something. I'll just be an accountant. Like, honestly, that you have the adjustment screws. They can go in and out at any time. Your instruments can and do crack. When you get a new instrument, you're the most excited to play. It's like, well, you can play on it for five seconds every day for the next eight years. And then you can move up to 10 seconds. It's like, (laughs) what?
1: Why would you do this to yourself? Uh, I'm telling you, it's the reason we are the way we are.
0: I get it. I get it. Um, Noelle says the most complicated thing she has to fix, replacing cracked tone holes. So is that like when a crack goes down the bore through the tone hole, I would guess?
1: Yeah, that's a take it in back and don't let me see what you're doing situation. Yeah. That's like, I don't want to see you do that. I don't need to know how the sausage is made.
0: (laughs) What would we do without repair people? I don't know. Honestly... They are the real MVPs of the double read world.
1: That is a thousand percent true. Uh And she also says the easiest and most Instagrammable fix is regolding lo- logos, like when oh. you take gold crayon and you refill in the like brand logo, and th- that seems very satisfying. Actually,
0: could you do it with a crayon that's not gold? Am uh, I making Noel scream at the podcast probably. right now because She's I'm coming probably
1: out. screaming because I said crayon?
0: Yes, don't take a crayon to your oboe on my account do not try this at home ask
1: noelle first
0: every listener's like we weren't planning on it jackie don't (laughs) worry
1: (laughs) wait there's one more there's one more oh okay
0: yes finish this off one last one Christian
1: christian says i was playing a low read book for a musical during a show a moment while we weren't playing a screw fell off the right thumb side of my bassoon and audibly rolled around on the floor i couldn't play anything below a g2 Thankfully, I had a Barry sax, and the sight cleft slash key signature transposition wasn't too bad. But I had to do sh- some shoddy surgery while I wasn't playing to get it playing again before some minor but exposed solos-, solos in the latter half of the musical.
0: Christian, I don't know what the correct answer is, but please never force us to utter the sentence. Thankfully, I had a Barry sax on double read dish <laughs> again. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key all are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's uglyducklingobos.com.
1: Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com.
0: We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Jeffrey Burgess, who is the instructor of Baroque Oboe at the Eastman School of Music and the oboe editor of the Double Read. Welcome, Jeffrey.
2: Thank you so much, Jackie and it This is really great to be here with you.
0: We're so excited to get to know you better over the next hour and I think the best place to start is to talk about when you became an oboist. How did you start to play this instrument?
2: Yeah I think everyone has either just a very ordinary story or a funny story. Mine's a little bit of both. You know I was a kid playing recorder um, and one day the recorder teacher came in with this instrument called an oboe and I was sort of intrigued because You know what kids are like? They get a lot of saliva in their recorders, and I hated that. It was just messy playing for me. And I saw this oboe with a tiny little mouthpiece, and I thought, oh, gosh, if I played the oboe, I wouldn't have that problem. So uh, when I went to high school, age 13 or something, um, there were oboes available, and I started to play. It was a little bit of a struggle at the beginning because we had really bad instruments. Um, they were from China. And I'm talking about a long time ago. Um, so there was a lot of uh, elements to those instruments that didn't work. So it was a bit of a struggle to get things up and running. And um, I proved that I was enthusiastic enough. So my parents bought me an instrument, French instrument. It was still a student model, but you know, there I was. I was playing Yerbo at age 13. When did you
1: decide to... Pursue the oboe as a career?
2: Well, I knew that I wanted to be a musician. Um, that would have been oh, just a couple of years later, like 15 or 16. I came or I come from a family um, that has various artistic streams. My father was an engineer, but his brother was an architect. And uh, my two aunts in my father's family were both artists who did commercial work um, for ads and so forth. I didn't know that until they passed away um, a couple of years ago. Um, but all of their... Uh, that side of the family, the mother was also a painter, and we had paintings of hers in the house. So there's all of these artistic things, and, you know, my sister played the piano a bit, and she became an artist and a teacher, and I sort of went the musical route. You know, my mother played piano, and she sort of was there, you know, uh, making sure that I practice my scales every morning and all of that sort of stuff. And I sort of got into it, and I dabbled with the idea of uh, going into architecture. But once I realized you had to be quite, you know, mathematically rigorous in that field, um, I gravitated towards the idea of being a musician. I was playing there, um, but I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be an artist. I think I thought maybe I'll be a composer something, you know. Um, but it was really a few years later when I graduated from high school um, that the oboe was really the centre of my musical activities. And that's when I also encountered the work I auditioned for Sydney University and I was playing a Handel Sonata and some other things, probably some Mozart, and, um, uh, probably some um, Schumann romance or something like that. And um, Uh, the chair of the panel said, oh, look, I've just got these Burakobos. Would you be interested in trying that out? And I said, oh, sure, not knowing what that was at all. And, of course, within the first semester, I was playing in an ensemble, a a Bach cantata, with early instruments. Um, And that is quite a while ago. And those instruments were also not really good. But I sort of got a taste for that. And so that set me on that path, which... Was, um, you know, a different one from what a lot of other us might have followed in the early 80s, um, to specialize in music playing for a cover, And that's what took me to Europe to study in Holland. Um, and, um, yeah, that's been my mainstay since then, engaging in that music interpretation and becoming like a, a music historian.
0: Could we hear a little bit more about that in detail? Could you maybe talk to us uh, about your training and educational journey and embarking as a a professional historical oboist?
2: Oh, sure, yeah. So um, I was really fortunate growing up in Sydney, in Australia. It's a wonderful city that had a very good education system and also um, opportunities like uh, a fantastic youth orchestra. And there's also the National Australian Youth Orchestra Association. And I was involved in both of those. Um, So I got a lot of orchestral training playing modern oboe. And uh, my early teacher was that woman who came with her oboe that day to primary school to the recorder group. And um, she was um, a very sort of straightforward player. Um, But that was a great... Environment just to be nurtured in, and then moving on, um, I had a wonderful opportunity to learn with another woman called Pauline Strait. She had been one of those women that got the very earliest opportunities uh, for women in orchestras after the second world war, and uh, so she had a career in a number of the Australian orchestras, and she had a lot of experience and also a lot of curiosity and um, she was sort of known as an eccentric so I would go in and play my scales and she'd say oh there's something wrong with your oboe and before I knew it all of the keys were off the instrument and we were drilling holes and doing all sorts of stuff oh, and I was thinking oh my gosh you know I have to walk up to the station and then go into town for the youth orchestra rehearsal this afternoon what is going to happen well we got the keys back on and you know that actually trained me And I know that I can do that. And I don't have a fear of, you know, taking off pads and re-gluing things and and, doing that general maintenance.
1: What Uh, about the drill? Do you retain a fear of the drill? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Look, I think I was exaggerating there. There were no drills involved. (laughs) But because my father was an engineer, Pauline Strait had sort of convinced him that there was something wrong with the bell of my own. And he made a reamer, and he put the bell on his lathe, and he actually turned out part of the wood on that instrument. Oh, look, it was a student model, and it was improved by that. But this is the sort of thing that we would do, and I sort of thought it was normal, I guess. And it was the same thing with reeds, you know. Um, Pauline was very quick at making reads. I know some people can do this, but, you know, she soaked the cane and had it ready for me to play within 10 minutes. And so by the time I was finished my scales and study, here's your new reed, And I go, oh, thanks. And <laughs> I, I always had to clip the tip because it was too light for me. <laughs> I like to have something with a little bit more resistance And so, look, Pauline was a wonderful teacher for my teen years, you know, when you're so excited and passionate about um, wonderful big works that you're going to play, Camino Burano or Symphony of Psalms and that sort of thing we were doing in the youth orchestra. And um, then, unfortunately, Pauline was passed over a number of times in her career, and she was one of the teachers at the Sydney Conservatorium and uh, at the point where they brought in a new teacher who was going to be the oboist in the Sydney Wind Quintet. She had to give her students up to him because he had a salary and she was, you know, hourly part-time writer. So, you know, I've always felt for Pauline. Um, and the teacher that I went to, his name was Josef Hanik, he was from Bratislava in what is now Slovakia. And he was a very interesting guy. We had the, this interesting mix of British-trained people and Czech musicians. You probably know that Iji uh lived in Australia in the later part of his life, and that he was the person that invited Martinu to write the oboe concerto. Um, so he was sort of this wonderful model of oboe playing for us. He was our doosance, so, sort of tabletop in Australia. Um, and so Josef Panik was another Czech player that I studied with some time, and then in my final year, I was able to uh, work with Diane Henderson, who was the principal oboist in the orchestra. Um, he was playing there in the Sydney Synth right up to the time that Diana Doherty took over. to, what was it, uh, early 2000s, I think. Um, so it was a very cosmopolitan environment, uh, but there weren't a lot of Oboists around. And I don't think I was particularly good. You know, when I see my students at Eastman, they come in and say, oh, I've been working on the Strauss Concerto. Oh, yeah, in first year. Great. Fine. And they played perfectly. I could not you know, that was something that was, you know, a huge undertaking. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't the greatest oboist, but I had some wonderful opportunities. So my uh, teacher, Yosef, was also the principal oboe in the Australian Chamber Orchestra. So he invited me as his second player. And there were some wonderful times there. We did some fantastic you know, performances of particularly classical music, at that time, and I think that's also, you know, when I was really getting into this idea of what it was like to be a professional musician and be thinking about the collaborative process in chamber music, which is really something that I think, um, you know, you either love it or you want to be the orchestral player and just fit into a larger configuration. I think there are a lot of people uh, that are suited to the orchestral life, and I've tasted that and I was just really excited by the prospect of being more collaborative in a small mm-hmm. ensemble. So that was something that sort of tipped the scales once I got the Baroque and I was playing that and discovering, uh, oh yes, music is a language. We can speak through our phrasing, our articulation, ideas can really come us, you know? um, So you So know, this was all going on up to uh, 1983 which is when I applied for and was granted a scholarship from the Dutch government. And I went over and studied. Uh, I wanted to study with Bruce Haynes. Uh, he was at that time a very prominent figure, and he had been teaching uh, Barack Obama in The Hague at the conservatory there for 10 years, but he just retired. So the scholarship office had to tell me that um, they were granting me the scholarship that I would be learning from Ku Ebinger. So I very quickly looked up to who he was. And it turned out that he was a fantastic mentor. Um, and he began teaching right at that time that I arrived. So we were both learning on the job, as it were. But he was a very generous man. And he came from the Dutch tradition, which was something that I guess um, I, I, I felt uh, uh, very much close to because it's all about, being yourself, and, you know, really making the music yours. Um, but, of course, aesthetically, the sound and everything was quite different from what I had done. It had been influenced by Bruce quite a bit because they had worked together so much over the years. Um, and so it was sort of a, a melting pot of ideas, and that was a great time, the two years that I spent there in Mahane. Um, after that, I went back to Australia, and it was so strange arrived back, and I was, you know, uh, completely immersed in playing early music, but I got a call one day saying, uh, we need a first oboe for Porky and Bess. I went, uh, well, you do realize that I haven't played modern oboe for two years. They went, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, yeah, we're sure you can do it. And, well, look, that was a hoot, I love that score, that was a fantastic experience, Yeah. And we were in the pit, but it was like chamber music. That uh, music is so interactive and everything. And, of course, it was a great cast, all from the U.S. um, And uh, that was a wonderful experience to have that sort of crossover and to be reintegrated into the modern world, as you call it, the modern world. Yeah, well, early music is just as modern, I think. but they're doing things maybe a bit differently, whatever. Um, and uh, but there were some isolated situations like that. But mostly it's been playing the uh, oboe, and I suppose the other element that comes into play here is that you know I had always been fascinated by the history of the oboe, and I don't know whether you've leafed through those books, the old Philip Bate book on the oboe, or even if you've got a facsimile edition of Barrett you might see the original illustrations in that book with his model of oboe. And so, you know, some of us in high school years, we'd borrow these books from the library and go, oh, look at this, look at this crazy weed! all of this sort of stuff. And so I had that sort of curiosity and everything. And then after doing my couple of years in the Hague, um, I, I got to meet Bruce Haynes, um, who was still in Europe intermittently, and I had sort of master lessons with him Um, and we started talking about stuff, and uh, he was just, you know, a really great person to mentor a lot of people. And uh, I think he realized that I was very interested in sort of following on with what he had done. And so a couple of years later, um, he was invited to write the article for the Grove Dictionary, the article on the oboe. And he said, well, I can do the stuff up to 1,800, but then you've got to ask Joe to carry on from that point. And I went, oh, my gosh, you know, that's a huge undertaking.
1: <laughs> I mean, I've read that article. It's amazing.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I had to just go back to Bait, uh, which was already 25 years old. You know, it needed uh, really important updating and everything. And Bruce and I really you know, thrashed out a lot of ideas with that. And then that was the germ for the Yale uh, book in the series of musical instruments, the over. So working so closely with Bruce over that time was just fantastic. Um, and, you know, we were um, close enough that we could um, criticize each other's work and really hone it uh, into something that would make sense for each of us and hopefully, you know, a big, broad audience. And guess what? Now there's going to be a French translation of that book. So I've got to go back on my own as I have done already with the Grove dictionary entry and go, okay, now what do we regret or what do I regret? Um, And I sort of have to think on behalf of Bruce as well. But I got a bit of practice doing that, you know, because Bruce left that book, The Pathetic Musician. Uh, He left it incomplete when he died. Yeah, it's pathetic with a K, right? Uh, (laughs) And... It's the musician who can evoke pathos, to to present a sympathetic view of a subject and really elaborate that in terms that the audience is going to warm to. So he left that incomplete, and I was invited by his uh, life partner, Susie Napper, to complete the book. So that's real ghostwriting. Uh, that's already uh, that came out in um, twenty. 13 or 14, I think. Yeah. And, well, we'll get to what I've been doing since then.
1: So I have a copy of The Oboe. It's in my office, and I refer to it often. And it's, uh, you know, I look up that New Grove article all the time. And mm. one thing I would love to get your perspective on is we love to talk to musicians who have perhaps pursued a less traditional path. And who have um, taken their unique passions and skills and um, customized a career out of that. And I think you're a perfect example of taking what you're interested in and molding it into something uniquely your own. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love to get your thoughts on what that took to do that and what advice you would have to people who have their own unique ideas who would be inspired to do the same thing?
2: Yeah, of course. Look, I think the main thing that it took to do what I do, which is combining scholarship with performance, is guts. You have to believe in yourself as a multiple entity. Mm -hmm. And you've also got to go out there and convince people that you can do it. And your job is harder, right? Mm -hmm. Because any musician is going to say, oh, yeah, well, he's a musicologist, so he doesn't have to play very well, or we don't expect him to play. And musicologists would go, oh, yeah, he's an he? So there's always this caveat that you have to work against. And I think anyone who is, you know, in a sense, interdisciplinary, and I really don't like that term um, in my own case, because what's the discipline here? It's just music, right? And everything I do is about music. It might be, you know, very detailed um, uh, record analysis of um, someone's life from two centuries ago. Yeah, it might be archival work. It might be um, uh, editorial work. It might be editing a recording that I've just made. It might be, you know, playing, making. All of this is about music, right? So I don't like to... Divided up like that and I think that's part of it as well if you can see everything is just you know different shades on a a spectrum of one do we want to call it a discipline I mean that involves something sort of very uh, uh, constricting in a way isn't it just sort of a a field of interest a field of interest that has beautiful colours that range across the rainbow you know and so you can you can go into your purple field and look at the yellow field next door. And, you know, it's a little bit like what I like to do with the students at Eastman. None of them, uh, or very, very few of them, come there wanting to play over and none of them exclusively, right? But the ones that arrive and say, you'd like to take over in their first semester, I go, okay, all right, let's see what you're doing. And I explain to them that what I can offer them is a perspective on their overall overall. And we often get a little trapped in what we're doing, right? You can't actually see what your breathing is like until you pick up a different instrument and realize, oh, in order to play that instrument, I have to do such and such. Now, what if I did that on my regular oboe? Mm-hmm. And then you realize, wow, that really transforms my notion of what breathing is all about. Mm. Yeah, So having the purple and the yellow and the the green and the blue um, just sort of gives us a different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And I've always been the type that can, and actually I thrive from having one or two, uh, sorry, two or three different activities at the same time. Mm -hmm. When I worked on The Pathetic Musician, uh, Bruce Haynes' book, I was also writing a book uh, about... Um, someone that was actually Bruce's mentor, an oboe uh, and recorder builder. And he had a fascinating life. He grew up in Germany, and he was a teenager during the Second World War. Wow, you know. Um, And so all of these incredible recollections of his early life came up in his uh, late 70s when I interviewed him. Uh, His name was Friedrich von Hunen. And um, it was wonderful to have these two projects, the Von Huner Project and the Haynes Project at the same time, because they sort I feel like they feed each other. Yeah, while you're working on one, you're thinking about the other one. And it's the same as playing English horn. You're thinking about what it would be like if, you know, you approached the other in a similar way, and vice versa.
1: That's a good point. In college, uh, my teacher was uh, unsatisfied with my breath support, so he put me on English horn for a semester.
2: Yeah, and you see the thing with Baroque oboe is you've got to be able to do actually more than uh, what you do on oboe or English horn. It expands your uh, capacity breathing-wise, articulation-wise, in many different ways. Um, So just think that You have to know how to blow to get the second octave because there's no octave key, right? And you've got to have the flexibility in embouchure and breath to play those fork fingerings in a satisfactory way that's going to be balanced in scale. So that's the sort of approach I take. And, you know, I tell all of my students, look, you're going to be doing things that may not be Mr. Kilmer's one, but it's always good. To have a different perspective and be able to just flip things on their head maybe do the total opposite in order to understand what really makes sense in music and so i'm unapologetic in that way you know um and it's it's work because you know mr kilmer has a great ability to attract wonderful students they're very open-minded and i think that that's a very important thing that we need to encourage as well that we're not just playing the same music in the same way. Okay. They've got an audition process in place, and that's very standardized. But if a student comes to me and says, oh, I'm working on this because it's on the list for such and such competition, I say, okay. Now, what you're going to learn from me is not necessarily the way that that jury is going to want to hear this music. I'm always upfront about that, because what can I offer? I can offer a stylistic perspective from my experience with that music. And you know, a lot of the times a competition for modern instrumentalists is going to be adjudicated by people who don't have the same background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, if you give a convincing performance in any style, there must be people there that can recognize it. Yeah? And it is a little bit of an education process at all levels, right? It's just like when you go into a performance, you, in a way, need to warm your audience up. What I was talking about before, being the pathetic musician, you need to make them open to the ideas that you put in across to them. In other words, educate them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, particularly with new music, yeah? You've got to convince them that the work is actually worth listening to.
0: Yeah, everything you're saying uh, makes a lot of sense and resonates with me. Um, and I'm kind of juxtaposing it against, um, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I know that I've spoken with many other musicians who share this perspective of, um, feeling intimidated by early and especially Baroque music. Cause we have such this, you know, depth and wealth of Baroque repertoire for double reed instruments, but because there is this expertise, because we do have thriving, um, historical musicians in our field and because I know enough to know what I don't know. I know, mm-hmm. you know, okay, this country, this, these years they would use <laughs> ornaments. They wouldn't blah, blah, blah. But I have no idea what they are. And I know the potential for faux pas is so high that oftentimes I'm de from even engaging uh, with the repertoire as a as someone who plays the modern bassoon. And so I wonder if you have any, I guess, general thoughts on that and then advice for where and how to get started um, for someone who wants to add it to their arsenal, but it's not necessarily going to be their primary area of expertise.
2: Yeah, look, Jackie, thanks so much for bringing that point up. And I get it entirely. You know, intimidation is something that we really want to work against. And... You know, I'm saying I'm a specialist in everything, but um, I just want people to know that so many of us that work in the Baroque field are very open about talking about the possibilities of playing this music on modern instruments. You know, it's not about the equipment that you've got. Um, And, you know, now I think um, there are so many recordings. There's so much material available on the internet. And that can be intimidating as well because there's such a huge array on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do, and one of the fun things with the uh, Double read organization is that we've got now this broke band. And so I think both of you in Boulder, and I don't know whether you had the chance to hear that group, you know, we just jammed for a couple of sessions and then presented some music, and it was people from all over the place. And many of them had never played a broke instrument before. And it's just so wonderful to see that sort of thing. And that's the type of experience that I would love a lot of people to have, just to understand that the instrument is is no big deal. You know, it's as light as a feather. The reeds play easily. And it facilitates a lot of things. And uh, so I think the other ingredient here is that there are so many different approaches. And you know, we're not standing there policing the situation, saying, oh, no, come on, what are you doing? Uh, that's not the way to play this music. There are obviously a lot of different players to approach a lot of different styles. Um, and we have a certain... Uh, it's become a sort of um, early music house style, I guess. It's a collection of practices that over the past, say, half century have become more standardized. And that might actually be an issue. We need, uh, you know, early music specialists, need to rethink a lot of things. Why are we doing things in such a way? Why are we playing um, intonation the way we do? Why do we think the oboe sounds a particular way? And so it's always refreshing for me to hear modern trained instrumentalists coming and picking up a rock oboe at any level. And I think... I never realized that there might be an issue here or that the instrument could sound as beautiful as that in someone else's hands, you know.
1: So what you're saying is uh nobody's gonna be muttering in the audience, they're playing this French sixteen oh two sonata as if it were Naples seventeen fifty seven.
2: <laughs> Whoa, well <laughs> I don't know what difference I would hear in that. Uh <laughs> What we'll be talking about, golly, yeah, it reminds me of some people, you know, we've got the whole idea of equal temperament and different temperaments for historic music and stuff, and there are certain, like, temperament police that go around. And will a uh-huh. concert, uh, like you play the complete Goldberg Variations, and they'll go up to the harpsichorders and say, well, what temperament were you using? And the answer is, well, couldn't you tell? If you're the, the answer, expert, answer
1: is don't be a buzzkill.
2: That- <laughs> and you know, a lot of the time it is that was the temperament of the day. That was what felt right. The instrument responded in that way. And you know, mm-hmm. that's what intonation is as well. There's no absolute right and wrong. Everyone has to work on intonation. Mm-hmm. And is intonation something that really touches the soul of a lot of us? We get so upset and intimidated by people to say, well, that's not intuitive. But let's just realize that it's a collaborative effort.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There are so many factors involved. We should not get emotional.
1: What, uh, what tips and tricks would you share with us about um, maybe embouchure, uh, air, fingerings, I don't know, whatever you think is important when approaching the Borokobo kobo for the first time?
2: Well, I think if you've got a good read, that's the most important thing. And what is a good read? A good read is something that is going to respond easily, okay? It's not going to require a lot of effort. Um, and then the biggest mistake that modern owners make when they first play burro-cobo is that they forget that it's a wind instrument that you've got to come into it, right? <laughs> and so often, you know, they're just sort of whispering. Bang. No, just be generous with the sound. Because unless you understand the full resonance of an instrument, I don't think it's the time to, you know, reduce it down to a beautiful doce time, right? You've got to understand and release all of that wonderful resonance and all of those upper partials and stuff. And then understand. Okay, by isolating certain of that part of the harmonic spectrum, I can create the sound that I want. And I never talk about on the show with students picking up a baroque over for the first time. Um, the most I might do is say, "Have you thought about the angle at which you hold the over, and the direction of the airstream through the reed?" And occasionally I'll find players that can't make the upper register speak easily. And it's often because they're not engaging the upper lip. Or Mm. or, by that I mean there's too much dampening. There's too much flesh on the reed to allow those notes to come out. And I'm only talking up to high C, you know, not high air Mozart quartet stuff. Just, uh, you know, the second half of the second octave. You know Um, So, you know, I like people to be able to find things. And, you know, I love Jackie LeClaire's exercise, the B-flat exercise. You know what I'm talking about? Just Mm -mm. play B-flat for, what is it, five minutes or something? And you think, hang on, what is she talking about? I can't play a note for five minutes. Well, you just play a B-flat as long as you can, and then you breathe and you go back into the B-flat. And she doesn't give any more instruction. But it's an amazing thing because then you start to realize how long you can hold a note, what you need to do to release and reset and just sort of come in and out of the flow of that note. So that's sort of my philosophy with Ambusha. Reads, you know, in general, don't we talk way too much about reads? Don't we want a read that just works? And I know it's hard for students to get to that point and they have to practice read making. But there's something about the relationship that we have with our read that is mm-hmm. really critical. And that is, it's a relationship exactly like a relationship with any human being. You know, it has its own little entity, you know, and it might get upset if we ask some things of it. Um, But over time, we'll get to realize that a read, you know, it's not going to change itself, just like a human being. Yeah, The way to relate to a human being is to accept them the way they are and know that any change is coming from you in the way that you view them. So if we're sitting there going, okay, read, you're not doing such and such. That's not doing any good, is it? Mm-hmm. we have to change our attitude. Okay, you don't let me play the low D, that's soft. Then I'll find out how soft I can, and I'll work. And, of course.
1: That seems like a much healthier attitude to no. readmaking.
2: <laughs> Someone asked me a few years ago, um, you're not like a typical lovers You know, you don't seem to be new right about reads. And I said, yeah, I wrote an article about readmaking. It's true. I did write an article about historic readmaking, making, and it's so interesting to realise that in the 18th century, most us did not make reeds. Right? They bought reeds. Maybe they were able to adjust them a bit, but it's not something that they spent a lot of time doing because they were too busy just playing. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And I've got a great interview in the next double read with one of the Curtis students, Ben and they talk about um, one of their stars, Heinz Holliger. I said, that's really interesting for a Curtis student to have, you know, a a sort of um, fandom for Heinz Holliger. And they said, you know, it's really because I can't believe that someone who plays so well could have so little interest in (laughs) readmaking throughout his career. And wouldn't it be great if we all could do that, if we had some. Someone to rely on to make out reads for us.
0: So, if we have someone listening and they're getting excited to delve more into early music, are there any hidden gems or lesser-known pieces in the repertoire that you think they would enjoy um, hearing about or checking out?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I think it is uh, very often. You know, students will get excited by. Those fantastic pieces that they know, like the wedding cantata of Bach or a big sonata by Handel, Um, and I want to say, look, there are so many other pieces that are more approachable when you're first playing film and first exploring the style as well. And a lot of us know that A minor sonata by Telemann Mm -hmm. uh, that's been printed a a lot. Uh, That's a beautiful piece to play, and it's on my list of things to work on. Um, I actually have a little guide for Baroque that I've used over the past 15 years now that I've taught at Eastman. And um, I didn't have anything at the beginning, and I was sort of scrambling for music, you know. But I put this together. It starts off with duets that we can play easily in the first lesson. And it really puts people in their place to play a very, very simple duet in whole notes. Oh, you've got to be able to play in tune. You know, you've got to be able to find the holes and all of that sort of stuff. But we quickly graduate to pieces like that, Telemann Sonata and um, what other pieces. There are some good study books. And, you know, the problem is, I think, we know the really fantastic pieces, the Vivaldi Sonata and the Concertos, but these are not things that you want to approach at the beginning. It's much better to find um, some more straightforward pieces. And um, I wish there was, you know, a commercially available anthology. That's something that hardly exists for mononova as well. Mm -hmm. What do you go to for, like, beginner students? Do you have a favorite book that you work with?
1: There are a few, but I I don't know that the editing quality is all that good.
2: Meaning that... um, There might be, what, um, things that don't belong to the original music or uh, is it?
1: Yeah, I would love to do more um, introduction to writing your own articulations, writing your own short cadenzas, you know, doing it a little bit more uh, on an elevated level at a lower, um, uh, at a younger age.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: um so i'm thinking specifically i can't remember uh which one it is but it's the one that has the schumann romances and the Handel sonatas all all in one you know and yes. it would be nice to have something more you know baroque specific and have more instruction on how to um improvise even yeah. if it's just articulations
2: no that's a great idea and um uh, with my Way of teaching. I basically talk through all of that sort of stuff. I don't like to write it out um, because I find, you know, every student has a different approach, and you need to really tailor what you do to them. So we might do things out of order from the book, and um, I've got examples of ornamentation that they can look at, and I always recommend that they go out and listen to different recordings. That's a great thing as well. You know, there's so much available, as I said before. Um, and it's usually very instructive to students. They become really aware of what players are doing when they hear different ornamentations, and then, you know, the assignment is simple, like listen to three different versions of this piece and tell me which one you find the most appropriate to the piece and why, and then we can Mm -hmm. open up a discussion. Uh, But you're absolutely right about editions, and what I do in this guide is to use facsimiles. So my cello, my concerto, you know, that's something else that's a great piece to to come to at an early point in playing Brokaw. And so, first of all, realising that it was originally published in D minor and that the slow movement has no ornaments at all, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all up to you and understanding structure before ornamentation and therefore being able to tell what is what. That's so critical. And, you know, I don't apologise for typos in the edition either. We go, oh, why is there an F-sharp here? That's not in the record. We go, absolutely right. You know, that was an error in that particular manuscript or the publication. So, you know, it's also informative to understand those details of reading the early music. And it gets people to just think a little bit more outside the box, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I love to facilitate, um, to be thinking more about how the music sounds rather than reading the notes on the page. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Playing instead of reading. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm just reading. Well, you know, when are you going to start to play the music?
1: Jeffrey, will you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance?
2: Oh, I knew you were going to ask. (laughs) I have been thinking about that. But I think I'm going to do this sort of twist around and say, my favorite performance is always the one that I've just been at or been involved in. Mm. Uh, Because, you know, I want to say that when you come to a certain point where you realize the end of your career is as visible or more visible than the beginning, then you start to think, okay, I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to play this piece. Are there going to be more opportunities coming along? So you need to make it the best. And I think that's a message that is true for anyone at any point in their career. But yeah, there are always those performances that stand out when you hear someone legendary, Um And it usually involves a synonym. I remember in Holland, I heard uh, Dietrich fischer Disco singing with Alfred Brendel. And I was in the front row in the concert, in the Concertgebouw. And so I was looking up. You were in the
1: splash zone.
2: I was in the splash zone. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't have the best sound in the house either. But I was able to see him, and he had a little cheat sheet on the piano, and he'd turn around and look, oh, next song, yes, right? And then he would turn back to the audience in character. And then Brenda would start playing. And it was really astounding to see that someone who'd sung that piece countless times, they still needed a reminder of which song came next, but that he could, could capture the character of that he in a split second and it was on his face before it was in his voice. Mm-hmm. And that was, that, yeah, that was wonderful. The other experience um, that I'm going to talk of, uh, one involving me, now, um, growing up in Australia, we relied very much on recordings from overseas. And so I got to know Bruce Haynes playing from one particular recording where he's playing the uh, the Bach Cantata, with a Dutch bass by the name of Max von Egmont. And Max sang a lot of the Bach Cantatas. That was really special feel. And it was a recording that I wore out, you know. It was you know, a vinyl recording and it wore out. I played it that much and I knew every note, you know. Um had my time in Holland working with Bruce and getting to know his way of playing uh, firsthand and all of that. And years later I met Max and we were colleagues at a workshop. And um, I think the next season I had the opportunity of playing that piece with him. And if you know what that piece is about, it's about, Simeon in the temple taking the infant Jesus and saying, Okay, I have seen enough in life. I'm ready to depart. And uh, on that occasion, Knox had some sort of issue that he couldn't rehearse. Um, You know, there was something um, health wise that prevented him from rehearsing. So we did a little warm up and then the performance. And so I remember playing that. And half an hour later or so, absolutely breaking down. Because I realized that I'd been in that position that I had venerated all of those years and it was very humble.
0: That's beautiful. I love those first full circle moments. Um, we always close it the same way, uh, which is what advice do you have for a young musician listening who aspires to have a career like
2: yours? All right, so I'm going to do a little bit of a different thing here, which is um, to introduce a topic that we haven't got to, Um, but it might be fun for young players to know that I have a new book, and it's called Born of the Honey Locust, and this is a novel that I have written about the life of Bach's oboist. We know who he was. We know some things about his life, um, but I have created a personality for him um, <laughs> based on what other writers wrote about their lives as musicians in those days. And, you know, I imagine the type of conversations that Kasper Gledich, which is this man's name, might have had with Bach, who was the same age as him. And I've also imagined the relationship between him and his son, who was a botanist, and much more famous than his father, actually. He was the same age as Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, And there must have been family connections. And so there is a story there, right? And there's also a story for musicians. What was it like to be educated in the 18th century? And what was it like to be an educator? So Caspar will give you advice. He's a bit of a grumpy old man, but do listen to him.
1: That is so cool and so exciting. I love that. Uh, when can we, where and when?
2: Um, It's already out. It's on Amazon. Okay. And uh, I will let Casper speak for me.
1: Jeffrey Burgess, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was a fantastic conversation, and um, you've inspired me to be uh, a little more adventurous when playing Baroque music.
2: (laughs) Adventurous, and please, no intimidation. Just go for it. (laughs)
0: Okay, well, thanks for joining us for that episode. If you're going to be in Bangkok for the IDRS conference, have a ton of fun and safe travels. And um yeah, follow on social media, rate and review on iTunes, all the good stuff. You know the drill at this point. Uh Galeet, who's on the next episode?
1: We had an amazing conversation with Glenn Einschlag, Principal Bassoon of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd
0: parade. Go make reads and don't sit on your oboe and crack it in half.
1: And
2: don't lose parts of your bison. And don't pick up a berry sex.